And take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the living Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is the word of God and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living God, we ask, we beseech thee that as we look at your word now that you might by your spirit, increase our understanding in our minds, renewing our minds, that you might raise the affections of our heart for Christ, that you may cause us to see as we begin this new book of Holy Scripture, the glorious food and foundation that your word is. We pray that even for the one here who knows not the Christ this day, By your word, you may reveal your truth to them in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a phrase that certainly will mark these first two verses of 1 Peter, but may indeed mark for us the entire book. That we as believers are homeless in the world, but we are always at home in Christ. We as believers are homeless in this world, but we are always at home in Christ. The opening words of First Peter, the book that we as a church begin to journey through this Lord's Day, Give us an introduction into this letter, a letter with a focus on Jesus Christ, written by an apostle who is calling those who are exiles, strangers, pilgrims in a hostile Greco-Roman culture to view their salvation. And as they view it anew and afresh to live in deliberate ways until their final inheritance comes. We are, brothers and sisters, exiles, pilgrims, strangers in this world, and we are homeless here. This is not our home. And increasingly, we feel that, don't we? We look around and we think we are like the people of Daniel's day. We're living in a land that's not our home. But we are always at home in Christ. And as this letter will reveal, the final revelation one day will soon come. And in that sense, we're headed home to Christ. So take heart, homeless Christian. You do have a home. 
And when this world increasingly feels like it's not where you ought to live, it's not your true place, know that Christ has said to you, you are indeed strangers in this world, but you are my elect. You're my chosen people. One commentator writing on this entire book says this. Peter uses words like way of life, conduct, behavior six times in this book. Uses the word suffer 12 times. Uses the word to subject or to be subordinate to six times. And uses the word or words for do good four times. He says, quote, when we consider these words together, we see that first Peter emphasizes the godly life of submission and good deeds in the midst of suffering. End quote. And as we continue to read through these chapters of first Peter, we will encounter this for sure. Turn over just a few chapters to first Peter four, verse one. Listen to the opening of that chapter. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Over and over this theme appears. This is what God in Christ has done for you. Therefore, as you live as aliens and strangers and exiles in this world, here is how you ought to live. But isn't this the way that all of the scriptures speak of believers? That we are given the definition of who we are. We're given an identity and then we're called to live out that identity. It's not the other way around, is it? It's not become a child of God through your good works. Suffer, do good. And one day God will allow you to become his son. No, you are given an identity and based on that identity in Christ, you're told as you live out your days here in this land, it's not your home. Here's how you ought to live. Homeless in the world. But always at home in Christ. Let's look at these first two verses. Peter An apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, many would want to linger here for quite a while. And here's what I mean. They would want to offer a variety of theories as to who the author of first Peter is. You might perhaps be interested in all of the various reasons why some scholars today. Today. Today want to argue that this is not really Peter. But brothers and sisters, I just submit to you the plain language of the text is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the self-same Peter who denied Christ. The one that Jesus prayed for in the book of Luke. Remember the statement there, Peter, you will fall, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you rise, feed, tend, care for your brothers. It's that Peter. It's the disciple of Jesus Christ, boys and girls, the one who denied Jesus, but the one whom Jesus loved. And this Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who saw the risen Christ and was ordained by Jesus to be the one through whom his word would come 
and through the, whom the foundation of the early church, along with Paul and James and John and the other apostles, would be planted. This is Peter, the Peter that we read of in the Gospels. The Peter with a kind of spiritual hyperactivity that always seemed to be misplaced. The Peter who wanted to love Christ, but was so often in love with Christ without the full understanding of who Christ was. The Peter who fell several times. If you think about it, Peter is one of the only people in the New Testament that we have a window into multiple faults, don't we? Paul had to correct this Peter. The book of Galatians reveals this. Peter fell in denying Christ not once, but three times. This is the Peter that the Lord used to indeed strengthen his brothers. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then we read these words, to the pilgrims. That's how the New King James renders it. Your translation may render it to the exiles or to the elect exiles. Strangers, aliens, sojourners. They're all different attempts at Translating the same word. People who are living somewhere, but it's a place that is not their home. To the pilgrims of the dispersion, the spreading out, the taking a group of people and kind of flinging them into various places. That's the dispersion. And then we get a list of cities. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is potentially, some scholars say, a list in clockwise order of the route that this letter would have taken. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter's writing to various places and has in mind the places, almost as if the places were in an order, a circle of sorts. But who are these pilgrims? Well, we know the original readers would have come from these various Regions or cities or areas. Notice they're pilgrims or strangers or exiles, but the next verse begins with the word elect. Chosen. Predestined. So in the one sense, they're unknown to the world. (laughs) They're exiles. You're not one of us. You live among us, but you're not one of us. Isn't that what the world tells us every day, boys and girls? Teenagers, college students, adults in our workplaces. You're among us, but you're not one of us. On the one hand, they're pilgrims. They're journeying through a land that is not their home. But the next verse reveals a greater truth about who they are. A more final truth. They're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The temporary small people of this world who are like a vapor define you as not belonging. But the eternal God says you are mine. Elect pilgrims. But who are these original readers? In one sense, it doesn't ultimately matter that we get the exact individuals Because the living word of God is for all peoples throughout all times. But Peter has in mind a particular people. There are two main theories. Most modern scholars 
see these individuals as Gentiles. And the word dispersion would kind of be a figurative way of saying, you're, you're like Gentiles who, like the Jews of old, have been just cast out of their land. Kind of borrowing on Old Testament language. And figurative way of saying that believers are like exiles in this world. And that's true. We are like exiles in this world. And these scholars would largely say that the elect exiles that Peter has in mind are Gentiles because of verses like, for instance, 1 Peter 1.14. Read what it says there. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So these scholars would say they have to be Gentiles because... It would seem strange for Peter to speak of Jewish individuals as having ignorance and former lusts. Or, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Well, if these were Jews, these scholars would say, they wouldn't have received kind of aimless tradition from their fathers. They would have received the traditions of the Old Covenant. Or places like chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where it says, You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Again, scholars say, well, if, if, if these were Jews... Why would Peter use that kind of language? So one theory is that these are Gentiles who Peter is writing to and saying, brothers and sisters, you are like figurative exiles in this world. Babylon is not your home. Christ is your home. And he will soon arrive to take you there. But other scholars, in fact, many Reformation era scholars think that this group was largely Jewish believers. Jews who were believers in Christ, who had been literally dispersed in Asia. And they make that argument based on the totality of Scripture. For instance, turn over one book to the book of James. James begins his letter this way. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad or dispersed abroad. And then if you turn over to John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, verse 35, you'll read this. In their interactions with Jesus, verse 35 says, Then the Jews among them said, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? And teach the Greeks. In other words, Jewish individuals perhaps carried over from Daniel's day who have been dispersed throughout the world. So theories abound. Is this literally the Jews who have trusted in Christ and they are spread out? Or are these Gentiles who are like an Old Testament kind of language? Like strangers and exiles dispersed in a place that's not their home. Well, in either case, the common denominator is what? People who love Christ 
but who are not at home. I think a balanced view here is that Peter is ultimately writing to groups of individuals that will be likely both Jew and Gentile. Which group he has dominantly in view, the scholars will continue to debate. But as the living word of God, we don't need to get stuck there. We don't need to say we have to solve that issue of who the original audience is before we can make any meaning for our own lives. That's not how we treat scripture. The original recipients and what they thought is indeed important. But ultimately, this is the spirit inspired word of the living God for all believers who indeed are pilgrims. Who indeed are living in lands that are not their home. But believers over which the living Christ says, mine, you're mine. Homeless in the world, but always at home in Christ. Brothers and sisters, just this past week, I had the opportunity to be in another part of the world. And there for several days to be teaching students from five different nations. And as I thought about that this morning, this text came to mind as I connected the two in this regard. Here we are, we're believers from all over the world. One individual from Hong Kong, one from Pakistan, one from the Netherlands, two from India, one from Ghana. And here we are all gathered and we're like the homeless people of this world gathered in one place. And you know what was true about every one of us, even though we all spoke different languages? Thankfully, they all spoke English. (laughs) And you know what was true about us, even though we were from various cultures? And what was true about us, even though we had very different lands from which we came, is that the sprinkled blood of Christ covered all of our hearts. And that was the defining word on our spiritual passports. Well, yes, pilgrims, strangers, exiles. But there's that next word in verse 2, elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then in verse 2, Peter gives us, doesn't he, a string of phrases that describe believers. Just notice, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these images for just a moment together. Well, that word elect, it's a very familiar word in our little Band of Christianity, the Reformed band, isn't it? It's a biblical word. We don't need to be afraid of it. Most of us in this room probably appreciate that word. We've come to understand that God indeed has elected a people from the foundation of the world. But that word Peter borrows is a word that has usage in the Old Testament. For instance, in Isaiah 45 verse 4 we'll often see that Peter regularly uses Old Testament imagery to speak to the recipients of this letter and to us today. Isaiah 45. You can turn there if you like. But listen to how the Old Covenant people are described in Isaiah 45, verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. Israel, my elect. 
I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. The understanding that God has had a chosen people carries over into the New Testament. Elect. But not just elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you're interested in this doctrine of election, I want to encourage you to pick up our church's statement of faith, our confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And there, go to... Chapter 3 and paragraphs 2 and 3. Now you will read two things, a summary of what the Scripture teaches. In one of those paragraphs, you'll come to understand that God didn't do anything because He looked down the corridor of time and saw what people would do and said, okay, that's what I'm going to decide that they're going to do. If I give them their free will, this is the choice Or the millions of choices they will make. So I'm going to make my will what they would do. As if God's mind needs to be made up based on us. God does not look down the corridor of time to figure out what he should do. God is the author of time. He decrees all things. And that's important for us to understand because the text says foreknowledge. And when many see that word, they read that word as this. God knew before what would happen, so that's what he decided to do. Boys and girls, God does know all things that will happen before they happen. The word foreknowledge, interpreted like that, is sort of a way of us reading into a word ideas that aren't actually there. Foreknowledge is not God saying, let me, because I know all the things that are going to happen, let me choose then based on what a person or people are going to do. Foreknowledge is God before things even happen, determining by the good pleasure of his will what he will ordain. Ephesians speaks to this, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 5, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, the text says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And we need to be careful with that phrase, good pleasure, and not write into it what it means for you and I to have good pleasure. Pleasure for us is often filled with emotions. Something happens outside of us, we feel like it moves us, so we have pleasure in it. God is not a God who is like us in that regard. He's not moved from the outside in the ways that we are. No, the good pleasure of his will as it relates to your election, believer, means that God, for the good pleasure of his will, chose to save you. The question, the question is often 
Why, O oh Lord, why have I been chosen? Elect pilgrims, elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is also a very strong encouragement for us in our evangelism and in our witnessing. Many people like to try to say, well, if God is sovereign over salvation and he actually chooses a people, then why witness? Because God in his infinite mercy and grace has chosen believers to be the instruments through which his elect hear the word of Christ. You need not fear when you evangelize that it all comes down to you. God has a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And he calls us to be a people who evangelize. And through us, the word of Christ comes. And that word is heard as it is preached in their ears. And the spirit of Christ regenerates an individual and draws them to Christ. Do you know when you're pleading with someone to trust in Christ? If they're elect, you're not the only one pleading You're not the only one speaking. So often we think that way, don't we? I'm going to present the gospel and I've got to plead just right as if the eternal weight of souls rests on our finite and feeble abilities. No. If someone comes to Christ, it is only because the Spirit of Christ gives them a new heart and they hear with joy for the first time that there is a Savior who died for them and will sprinkle them with His blood. Elect. So often you feel the pilgrim part, Christian. You feel the stranger in exile and alien part. But the greater reality is not that you're temporarily a pilgrim here. The greater reality is that you belong to God. Preach the election of God and the sanctification of the Spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ to your soul every day. When the world says you don't belong, sometimes you just need to say, it is true, but I do belong to one greater than all of the kings of this world. We're homeless in this world, but always at home in Christ. Well, that phrase there, elect, really begins, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Now you need to know that this is not Peter dividing the Trinity as if there are three parts in the Trinity and each part does its own thing. Those theologians in the room that like big terms, we call this the doctrine of inseparable operations. You're thinking, what in the world is that? We mean that God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that this one being does all that he does. But often, as is the case, we see from different angles the various persons of the Trinity highlighted as the work of the one God is discussed. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father... In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You were to try to diagram this. I think you could say election according to the foreknowledge of God is ultimately something 
that is going to bring about being set apart by the Spirit. And thus being set apart by the Spirit, as we will see, brings a result. We hear the gospel and we obey it. And we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So let's talk about each of those. Again, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What can I say, beloved? God has set his love on his people. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3. Galatians 4, 9. In fact, later in chapter 2, Peter will say this about Christians. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in the doctrines and the technicalities or the debates about what word means. You know, one of the most special realities about the doctrine of election is that it means that according to first Peter, chapter two, verse nine, you are a special people. And every bit of us wants to to try to have a God centeredness. Versus a man-centeredness that plagues so many pulpits and so many of the books that we read in Christianity. And we're right to, to try to guard that. But don't lose sight of the fact that God has set his love upon a people and we are special because of God. We ought not minimize the reality that God in his infinite mercy has said, I am setting my covenant love on a people. And that ought to well up within us a great amount of humility. But God has set his love on his people. Now, this understanding of election or ordination shows up elsewhere in the book. First Peter, chapter one, verse 20. First Peter, chapter one and verse 20, we read this. Speaking of Jesus, he indeed was foreordained. Before the foundation of the world. Now, if we're trying to be consistent, it would be very strange, wouldn't it, for us to take that word foreordained or foreknowledge or election and say, well, I guess that means that God looked down the corridor of time and saw that Jesus would have been the best option, so he chose him. No. This was the definitive plan of God. The election of a people and the finished work of Christ. Also in chapter 2, verse 6, we read of the word elect. There again, notice what it says. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Jesus, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. I can't wait if God gives me breath to get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If you believe in Christ, Christian, you will by no means be put to shame. We, we gotta, I got to wait. So this understanding helps us to see that God has a decree from the beginning and it will come to pass. It is that Jesus will do all that Jesus does, but it is that his people, strangers in this world, will be his own for all eternity. But elect, and then next, in sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification 
almost always comes to mind and we think, well, that's that's us becoming more like Jesus, growing in holiness. And it is progressive sanctification, the idea that we grow in sanctification. And that some of us grow more quickly in sanctification than others. Some of us grow further in sanctification and holiness than others. Every believer is equal in their justification. There's no person in this room that is more justified than another person. But yes, sanctification is is a process by which we grow in holiness. But here the word sanctification means to be set apart. That's often another usage of this word. We are set apart in the Spirit. So according to the foreknowledge of God, we are elect. And this election brings about the fact that we are set apart in the Spirit. Notice how this understanding or this word is used. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter uses the same word. Notice what he uses. 1 Peter 3, 15. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts. How will you make the Lord more holy than he already is? So you see there, it's setting apart the Lord. Peter is using that word in the sense throughout this book. We are set apart by the Spirit, and that brings a change within us. That brings a change within us. Maybe again, as we mentioned, you feel very much like a stranger here in this world, but I hope as we journey through these verses, particularly verse 2, you will see that there are great and glorious truths about you and about who you are as you're at home in Christ. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, set apart or in sanctification of the Spirit, and then notice that next phrase, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's look at those two phrases. The election of God means that the Spirit sets you apart. And part of that being set apart is obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does the word obedience mean? Well, I think here, beloved, the word obedience is not most speaking to how you obey the law of God as a believer. But here, I think it's about your receiving of or obeying the gospel. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, think back some years to our time in the book of Romans, if you were here. All throughout that book, Paul speaks to obeying the gospel, meaning receiving it. Romans 1.5, the beginning of the book. Romans 16.26. The phrase, obeying the gospel, is used, and it refers to coming to the faith. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, Paul, almost as if he were heartbroken, speaks to not all people having, quote, obeyed the gospel or the good news. But let's look in our own book, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. So God elects a people, the Spirit sets them apart, and they receive 
They obey the gospel. Thomas Schreiner, in commenting on this phrase, says this, quote, The foreknowing work of God and the sanctifying action of the Spirit results in human obedience and the sprinkling of Christ's blood. Two sides of conversion are contemplated. The believer's obedience to the gospel and Christ's cleansing and forgiveness. End quote. But then we read this phrase, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Have we ever in Holy Scripture seen an instance where a people, a covenant people of God, are given a covenant that they are to receive, and sprinkling of blood is also given at that time? I'm glad that you asked. Turn over to Exodus chapter 24. There, almost as if it were a type, a picture of something greater to come, we read of the Old Covenant, don't we? Israel affirming the covenant under Moses. And there, what do we see? We see receiving, obeying the covenant, if you will, and a people sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice of that covenant. Let me just read. Exodus 24, verse 3 and following. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who burnt burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. To the covenant, the old covenant, which says the law of God is a picture for you of life in the land. Obey and live in the land, disobey and disinherit the land. That was the old covenant. We will do it, Moses. We will be obedient. What does Moses do? Verse eight. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. I think very much Peter is picking up on that. Just as in the old covenant, when laws and regulations were given about a people maintaining ceremonial cleanliness with God, they were given the terms of the covenant and they received it. They obeyed it. At least they said they would. And they were sprinkled with blood. Here. Peter says to these pilgrims, you have been chosen like they were, according to the foreknowledge of God, set apart by the spirit to receive this covenant and to be sprinkled with the blood of this covenant. Now, here's the glorious reality, brothers and sisters. The covenant that we are in is the new covenant. The terms of the new covenant are not obey and live. The terms of the new covenant are this. He obeyed. Now live. And you're sprinkled with his blood. Can you imagine the old covenant people standing there, perhaps children in tow, dressed for the occasion? 
And Moses takes the blood of the covenant and he begins to sprinkle it on the people and it hits them in the face and drips down their face. It covers the clothing, perhaps nicely starched clothing of their children. Their hands are likely raised and blood is on their hands. This is the blood of the covenant. We as Christ's people now, as it were, figuratively have Christ's blood sprinkled on us. You are walking through this Babylon of a world with the blood of Christ sprinkled on you. You've been set apart for sprinkled blood. There's covenantal language here, I think. So, the truest reality about the stranger and the alien and the exile here in this world is not that they're in a group of people and those people say, you're not one of us. We feel that the most. Oh, how we feel it. But that's not the truest reality about us. (laughs) No, we are the elect of God. Surely by His grace. We've been set apart for Christ by His Spirit. We've heard the Gospel and received it. And we, figuratively, like those of old, literally, have Christ's blood sprinkled on us. The stain of our soul is no longer our sin. It is the glorious stain of Christ's blood that will never come off all over us. John Calvin, writing on this, says this, quote, God then sanctifies us by an effectual calling. And this is done when we are renewed to an obedience in his righteousness and when we are sprinkled by the blood of Christ and thus are cleansed from our sins. And there seems to be an implied allusion to the ancient rite of sprinkling used under the law. For as it was not then sufficient for the victim to be slain and the blood to be poured out, except the people were sprinkled, so now the blood of Christ, which has been shed, will avail us nothing except our consciences are cleansed by it. There is then to be understood here a contrast that as formerly under the law the sprinkling of blood was made by the hand of the priest, so now the Holy Spirit sprinkles our souls with the blood of Christ for the expiation of our sins. End quote. All this, and then Peter says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. God's grace to you, elect, set apart, sprinkled blood on your soul. Grace to you and peace, peace. Peace be multiplied as you meditate on these truths. Peace be multiplied as you realize that all of the world's rejection of you matters not. Because God has set his affections on you and he will not remove them. He does not change. Christians are indeed pilgrims and strangers, exiles in this world. We are indeed homeless in this world, but always at home in Christ. So then, as we journey, Peter will say in verse 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. And then here it is. That of which we spoke at the beginning. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look at verse 13. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is who you are. Now go and live in line with who you are. It is the pattern of the New Testament. Pilgrims of the dispersion. Homeless in this world. But elect, set apart, and sprinkled. That is the loudest word ever said over anybody. And it's said, Christian, of you. Let's pray. Living God, help us, strangers and exiles that we are in this world, to see the greater reality. And we do have a home. We do have a family. We do have a kingdom. We do have a nation. May we live in that reality, we pray in Jesus' name.